You have found Internet Marketing for Smart People Radio. I am Robert Bruce, and today we're getting back to basics with one of the most respected, dangerous, and been-around-the-block copywriters in the world. John Carlton is on the horn with me, and I'm going to grill him on your behalf and try to get every bit of copywriting wisdom I can from the man. Mr. Carlton, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Well, before we get into these questions for you, John, I want to remind those of you listening that this show is brought to you by the Internet Marketing for Smart People course, which is our totally free 20-part online marketing course delivered straight to your inbox. This uh, course is the very best of Copyblogger, wrapped up into about 20 systematic, perfectly readable emails, dripped out to you about once a week. When you sign up, you'll get years of Copyblogger tutorials, totally free, and with the benefit of not having to go back and pick through thousands of articles in the archive. If you want to get on the bus, it's easy. Head over to copyblogger.com, scroll down to about the middle of our homepage. You'll see the headline, Grab Our Free 20-Part Internet Marketing Course. Drop your email address into the little box there, and we'll take care of the rest. All right, John. We could probably spend the entire show on just the story of how you came up as a copywriter, how you started, and then how you finally found your way. But give us the 10-minute version here, if you can. This is a great story, and I think it's also very instructive to those out there listening who either want to learn this craft or want to get better at it. Yeah, um, the reason it's a good story is totally by accident, of course, but I was the I was the Uber slacker, uh, even before they invented the term slacker. I was, uh, you know, I, I finished college and drifted away and just really never figured out what I was going to do. Uh, I was in my early 30s. I think I was 32, maybe, maybe 33. And I had... I had gone through a, a period of time where I had I, I was working in Silicon Valley in an art department, and I lost my girlfriend, my place to live, and my job all within like a two month period. I wound up living out of my car, going up and down the uh, West Coast, looking up every friend I knew who had a couch to sleep on, and sleeping on that couch, and went down to San Diego and wound up in Los Angeles and got a, a really bad job, and just had an an epiphany that. If my life was going to change, I was going to have to be the one that took responsibility and changed it. And I learned for the first time in my life about goals and goal setting and all this stuff happened. And that's something that I could I could talk about for a long time and I do and I try to help people out with that. But it, as far as my story, it, it became literally I was working from nothing. When I decided to become a freelance copywriter and, and go off into a what I called a career, which became a career, but I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no mentors. I had I had never met a freelance copywriter before. I had no idea how I was going to pull all this off. All I had was um, I, I had one month's rent left in in my bank account. I had a rattle trap car that was that I had to go put water in every time I wanted to drive in anywhere. And I was working on a manual typewriter at the time. This was the early '80s uh, before uh, uh, PCs came out. And and I had all I had big cojones, and and I was living down in Los Angeles. Happened to be in a ripe 
period of time for freelancers. So it didn't matter that I was figuring this out as I went along uh, because there weren't a lot of freelancers out there. And the main thing that I did, the accidental thing that took me, you know, th- that made my rags to riches story compelling was I, I made what seems now like an obvious decision, but back then wasn't obvious at all. I figured out before I walked into a direct response advertising agency and said, I'm here, you know, to be hired to write, you know, the stuff that your staff, you know, can't, can't handle right now. I had better get really hip on everything about business, marketing, advertising, and stuff like that. So I took a speed reading course, uh, paid a hundred bucks for it, uh, really couldn't afford it, but did it. And then went to the Torrance Municipal Library and read everything in the Dewey Decimal System from, I think, 600 to 750, something like that. It's it was marketing, advertising, sales, salesmanship, all this stuff. I and and I sped read through it and found the the good books and took those good books and read them again very slowly. And what was interesting about that, there were two things that happened that made me uh, that 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 gave me a leg up on everything. I walk. I then walked into agencies thinking that 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 two or three weeks of having spent reading the entire library, so so to speak, was going to get me up to speed with the guys I would be begging for jobs from. And in fact, it put me light years ahead of them. I discovered right off the bat that most agencies and most writers in agencies and most people who, who ran agencies knew very little about advertising, marketing, or business in general. They usually, they, they got jobs, they really wanted to be screenwriters or novel writers, and they looked down on copyright, and they, and they thought being cute and clever was the way to go, and they, they really had very little idea of what to do. So I walked in, the day I walked in as a rookie, I knew more than most of the people there just from an intellectual standpoint. And as I gained experience, I kept running it through a couple of things that, that I invented, I, uh, mostly the um, uh, gun to the head attitude of, uh, I, I just decided every time I sat down to write a piece that I was going to write as if I had a gun to my head that would go off if it didn't work. So that kept me from doing cute stuff. That kept me from going off on tangents. That kept me from experimenting. I, I used classic how-to headlines. I kept it simple, straightforward, and and uh, really stuck to uh, classic salesmanship. And all that worked. Um, and the second thing that happened was when I met Jay Abraham, and through Jay Abraham, and I met Gary Halbert, who your listeners should know are now legendary uh, copywriters. The books that I had found during my jaunt through the library and decided were the best ones happened to be the ones that these guys had also chosen. This included Claude Hopkins, who was then out of print. Uh, that would the the best book would be My Life in Advertising and. Um, Scientific, uh, scientific advertising. Yeah, scientific advertising slash my life in advertising. Actually, two books that he wrote, which are put sold as one book. It's back in print. David Ogilvy's books, uh, Confessions of an Ad Man, and uh, a guy that worked with Ogilvy, John Caples, who wrote Tested Advertising Methods, and also a guy named Victor Schwab, who wrote How to Write a Great uh, Advertisement. And a lot of the stuff was written back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And in fact, Claude Hopkins was writing back in the 1920s. So this was the kind of stuff that was overlooked, ignored, and dismissed by most advertising so-called experts back in, in the 80s. And we kept it alive. Like I say, a lot of the stuff, like the John Collier letter book, had been out of print for 15 years. When I was with Halbert, we paid $1,000 for a copy of a mimeograph copy of that book. 
and it's now back in print. I think you can you can get it. I, I'm not sure who's publishing it, but you know you can get it for twelve bucks now. But you know it was worth a thousand dollars at the time to get a badly copied. You know. Uh, I don't know if the listeners here know what mimeograph is. It's a very low-level form of copy. Anyway, the point was <laughs> the information was most important. So all of this stuff kind of coalesced. Now, I spent my career working for agencies, for, for, for small corporations, and then I got involved in the largest mailers in the world like uh, uh, Phillips and Boardroom and Rodale, things like that. And when Halbert came along, he kind of made me an offer and he represented the entrepreneurial side of of the uh, uh, marketing world and I didn't even hesitate I turned my back on a million dollar career I was the up-and-coming writer uh, with these corporations and had a very, very lucrative uh, career ahead of me. And I was working with guys like Jim Rutz. I was ghostwriting for Jim Rutz. He's the inventor of the Magalog, uh, one of the top and highest paid writers. I was working with uh, uh, Gary Benzavinga and guys like that. But I didn't even hesitate to go off with Halbert and work with the entrepreneurs because that's where it was exciting and that's where we could try stuff that we, you know, we could market fearlessly and go where no marketer had gone before. So I went off in that way. And what happened was while I was I was having fun and and jumping on this stuff, two things I think are relevant, and I will wrap up the story with this. One is during my career, and I, I, I'd say it took me 10 years to figure out how to be a good freelance copywriter before I, I took off with, with, with Halbert. I made almost every mistake possible. I, you know, I stumbled into every pitfall. I went down every blind alley and I did it, but I recovered quickly and I took notes. And those notes then became my first book, uh, Kick-Ass Copywriting Secrets of a Marketing Rebel, and became the foundation for my own teaching uh, and my own ability to take almost any writer and show them the ropes very quickly of what to do because I knew what to do because I had done what not to do, figured it out, fixed it, and then went back and did it right. So I multiplied the uh, successes and recognized and minimized the the bad stuff. So uh, it, it was kind of perfect. Uh, if I hadn't taken notes, it, I would be a much less better teacher, but I, I kept journals all along the way, which I recommend all writers do. Keep a semi-secret journal. I mean, uh, if, if actually, I would not want anybody to read my journal, so I had an uncensored way of letting out all my frustrations and talking about things, and I hope nobody finds these journals. But it helped me clear my head and stay focused on what was going on and fix a lot of problems that that were happening. So I recommend journals for for everybody. And what was the other side of that? Well, that's great. I offered two things. I only talked about one and the other one will remain a secret. (laughs) We'll come back around to it if it comes back up. Why copywriting? In the very beginning, where did the idea come from and what kind of captivated you or captured your imagination about it in the very beginning when you were looking around, when you were living in your car, this rattletrap car, and you uh, had a month, I think, did you say you had a month of uh, income left or even that? Why was well, it copywriting? There, there was a period of time. The I, I sometimes compress the story because there's a lot of irrelevant stuff, but I did have a job. when I. There was about a, a year and a half between that period of me living out of my car and me going out as a freelancer. And during that time, I actually had a job where I was a one-man advertising 
uh, department for a very small company, and I was just trying things out. and And I stayed. There was a, it was a, a, a forgettable job. But when I went out on my own, yes, I had no money saved up. I I had a you know a car, and I was working off of a typewriter I had bartered for, and I had a phone that I'd actually taken out of the garbage at this other job I had, and uh, set it up in my bedroom. So I was in a little tiny apartment in Redondo Beach, uh, down down in the LA area, and I was where everything was in. I had a bed, and next to the bed was a desk, and everything was there. I, there. There are photos of me back there. It's it's you know it's it's pretty interesting, but it, it proved the point that that's all you need is your brain and your skills and uh, the ability to uh, you know to translate that into uh, into advertising. When I got my first, uh, and I got early uh, uh, personal computers, I, I I was an early uh, uh, adopter, and I didn't change. I didn't get a bigger office for. Five Five years or so, I would continue working out out of the bedroom because I just had my little my little little cubbyhole. I did remember, by the way, Robert, not to scatterbrain this too much. The other thing I was going to say, the main thing, the main decision that I made when I became a uh, a freelancer, I just kind of announced to the world by by just saying to myself, "I'm now a freelancer. That's what I'm going to do." And I'm I had no plan B, and I was going to starve if I didn't make this work. So it was kind of like Cortez burning his ships off the coast of Central America when he, you know, conquered the the Aztecs. I realized that opportunities were not something that cascaded upon a person's head. Opportunities are like whispers in the wind. If you're not primed to hear them, you will not hear them. Uh, I discovered Jay Abraham through a someone else mentioning an ad that he had written somewhere. And if I hadn't been, had my antenna up and hyper attuned to listening to this stuff, I I didn't know who Jay was. I didn't know who Gary was. Nobody did. Gary was actually uh, uh, still unknown when, when, when I was uh, introduced to him. Um, The, these whispers in the wind, I, I think most people in their lives get, at most two or three opportunities, big opportunities in their lives. And most people get none, even if, if some go by, uh, go by them or, or, or are available. What happens is that we're not attuned to it and we get, we get jaded about it. We think, oh, you know, I'll, if I don't do it now, I'll do it later. And what, what happened to me was uh, uh, not going to a Jimi Hendrix concert back in 1968. I was still in high school had an opportunity to go, didn't go because something important popped up. And uh, Jimmy was gone not not too long after that. And I never did see him live. And to this day, I can't tell you what was so important that I didn't go to that concert, but I do remember missing the concert. And that's kind of that, that thing of opportunities come and go, and there aren't a lot of them. And the big opportunities, the life-changing and career-changing opportunities often will not announce themselves. They will not, you know, tap you on the shoulder. They will drift by almost imperceptibly. you got to be hyper-attuned to that. That alone can change a person's life once they realize that opportunities are hard to catch and you need to jump on them right away. All right. One more thing from your story. You said you went through the entire marketing and advertising section of yeah. the Torrance Public Library. This is yeah. fantastic. Probably my favorite part of the story. And you talked about coming out of that experience, reading those books that uh, you thought that it would catch you up, but you were you found when you got out in the world, uh, you were actually way ahead of mm-hmm. working professional writers and copywriters. One thing in particular from that is you said that you read the stuff and tried to find the good stuff, of course, but you reread the really good stuff. Now, this is a 
drop dead simple elementary piece of advice. Uh, deceptively too simple, but this is really important, right? Reading, rereading, even some uh, a handful of books, maybe on an annual basis. Oh, I would say you know what, what's interesting is when I met Jay Abraham, I actually physically met him. I had arrived at his office ready to punch him out because he had put an ad in the LA Times looking for uh, direct response writers, and I had responded. And he sent me back a curt uh, uh, letter, which made it obvious to me that he had not read my stuff because he said, you're not really ready for this kind of stuff. Why don't you read um, Claude Hopkins? And I suggest you read it six times uh, before you could get back to me. Well, I had actually read Claude Hopkins, uh, My Life in Advertising and and Scientific Advertising, eight times at that point. That was during the first uh, year and a half of of my so-called career. And so I was very angry because it was obvious that he had not even looked at the package, that he had just taken my response and sent me this form letter back. So I found out he lived very nearby, and I went and met him, and his office manager intercepted me. I mean, you know, I... You know, I was, I was going to go in and confront him, but I was really mad because this was my life. And he was being, you know, and, and this guy I wanted to meet was being uh, uh, capricious about it. And uh, I wound up becoming fast friends and uh, made a deal with Jay. This is very important, too, and ties in with that reading the books. When he found out that we had the same books in common, that I had read a lot of it, and we were reading these and, and I continue to read that book yearly for another 15 years. I haven't read it in the last couple of years, but I'm due to read it again. And I kept reading these, these books. Um, but uh, I also made a deal with Jay that I would work for free in exchange for a free run of his office. So I got to hang out while he was doing consultations. I got to look in the back drawers of forgotten cabinets where uh, stacks of unpublished uh, 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 advertising was, uh, was, was, was hidden, hidden away. And I got to see how a successful consultant ran his operation. So it was huge. And I wasn't getting paid for it. I would write for free and getting there, but it was a million-dollar education. So finding those old books that other people dismissed and ignored, uh, uh, setting myself up for not becoming rich right away, but actually doing my due diligence. And, and uh, I grew up in a, uh, in a working class household. My father was a, uh, a construction worker and th- they don't do it anymore, but they used to have, it was like a guild. You had to be a novice. You had to, you had to be mentored by someone else who knew how to do the job. And it took a couple of years to get from novice state to journeyman. And then after journeyman, you became a foreman and stuff, but you had to climb the ladder very slowly. So that was beaten into me. And I didn't expect, even when I knew I, I could write better and knew more than a lot of these ad guys, I knew that until I got the experience and until I had, I had, uh, Done my, uh, done my duties as, as a rookie that I wouldn't be deserving of calling myself an expert writer yet. So I was willing to do this. I didn't have expectations of fast wealth. I had expectations of entering a career that I could do for the rest of my life. I have to tell you too, Robert, that career, I, I teach other people how to be writers and how to be freelancers because the career saved my life and I made a vow early on that I would help others if I made it. I mean, I, I seriously had no no plan B. I was working without a net and uh, it was it was pretty scary. So I understand how scary it can be for others. 
And I started confronting things. I mean, that that attitude, that gun to the head attitude. I started confronting things like writer's block and things like that and realizing that they were myths. That really being a good writer meant that you weren't, you didn't have a novel, you know, in the, you know, I, I do write novels on the side, but I didn't consider myself a, 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 a novel writer moonlighting or, you know, trying to, trying to pay the bills by being a copywriter. I was a copywriter. And on the side, I might sample, uh, you know, fiction and, and do other things. But, but I took, I took this business of creating ads very seriously and I never forgot that when I wrote an ad for somebody his business was on the line his lifestyle his family everything that he needed to make his business a success um, you know copy was king from 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 the very beginning so without a good ad they're nothing uh, businesses are toast I realized that even if I wasn't getting paid or even respected as much as I should, I held the keys to the kingdom for every single job I took. If the ad didn't work, bad things were going to happen to the to the client's business. And also formed my attitude later as my fees went up and as I started gaining notoriety and a quote-unquote reputation, uh, I started realizing I had to take control, that I had to be, and actually we'll, I think we'll, we'll get into this later on, but it's about, it's about doing freelancing in the right way and having the right attitude. And I think a lot of people get into it thinking mostly this is about you making money as a writer. And that's fun for people who, who realize, wow, I'm a professional writer. This is great. That's a huge revelation to have that you're actually paying the bills by being a writer, by sitting down and crafting language so that it effectively communicates a business sales message you know, to, to, to prospects. That's all very fun. But really, you are the savior of businesses. You are the guy who's going to come in and take a untenable position of a business. They're almost always struggling when, when they have freelancers. They don't know how to write. They don't understand uh, advertising. They don't understand salesmanship and print. They don't understand any of this stuff. And you are that guy that comes in. You are the white knight. So that attitude means you got to be serious about this. You, it's your job and your job is very important. All right. You talk about goals. You've talked about uh, writer's block, work ethic. Let's extend uh, this idea of what your job is and take a look, you know, maybe a day in a life kind of thing. What are your working habits, John? And how do you approach the blank page? And how are you getting your work done day after day and year after year? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I will say that as... It, as a tie-in to me being a slacker who didn't get my act together until my early 30s, and I had a true rags to riches story, actually living in my car and then and then and then, you know breaking out from that. So too am I one of the laziest writers you you will ever meet. I am by nature a I'm that slumbering ape in the jungle, you know, who went, waiting for the banana to fall on my lap because I'm too lazy to get up and, and go grab it. But when I write. I, I do something that I have, I have called stocking the desk. And what happens is that I, I, I know I'm going to spend a period of time, and it could be an hour, two hours, or whatever, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go deep into this writerly state, and so I stock the desk. And when I have to write an ad, I will do what I need to do. Maybe I have to take a walk beforehand. Maybe I'll take a nap. Maybe I'll take a long uh, a hot shower. I will do what I need to do and I'll start to get prepped. And if I don't need to get prepped at the desk, if I can get on the phone, say, and interview somebody and just get some information, I won't sit at the desk and do it. I'll walk around the house or I'll walk out back. And, and uh, what, what I'm doing is I'm prepping myself. And when I get in 
close to my desk. My desk, by the way, looks like a bomb went off. I use pile theory here. So, I mean, people would be appalled at the mess on my desk right now. But I know where everything is, and there's method to my madness. But I, I work very sloppily. I'm very lazy. But when I sit down and I'm ready to write, I become the most intensely focused, hardworking writer that I've ever met in, in my life. And, and what I do is I get prepped, I get zeroed in, I stock the desk, and when I'm ready to go, it's like, it's like bang, let's go. I am a fighter stepping, stepping into the ring. Now, um, I've said before, uh, I mentioned that writer's block was a myth. I, when I speak in, in front of audiences, and there's, there's usually a number of writers in the audience, and, or even there's people who are sampling writer or need to write, Now we'll say, how many people uh, are bothered by writer's block? And a good third to a half of the room will raise their hands. And I disabuse them of the notion. I, I, my response is, grow up. It's a myth. It's, it's nonsense. All writer's block is is not being prepared on what you need to do. So if, if you sit down and you haven't got a headline burning in your head and you don't know how you're going to start this conversation using, using language to write down, whether it's going to eventually be a sales video or a, even a presentation from the stage or whether it's going to be an infomercial or whether it's going to be a written ad in a magazine or it's going to be a website, it doesn't matter. It starts with the written page writing down, hi, my name is Joe Blow and for the last 20 years I've been an expert in blah, 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 and here's what I have for you, and things like that. If you're not ready to just blast that first draft out uh, when you sit down, then you have no business sitting down and even and even starting because you should be prepared. You should be you should be boiling with 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 the information you need and and all this stuff. Freelancers become experts in the markets they uh, inhabit for the period of time they are paid to inhabit that, that market. So that's what makes us different from other writers. Uh, some writers only work in one market, like they get a job with a, say, say a, a guy in the weight loss or diet field, and then they wind up becoming an expert in that. But they couldn't write for the financial industry to, to save their lives yet. They would have to reinvent it. The kind of freelancer that I was, was I took every job that came along and I was writing for, I don't think there's a market out there that I haven't written for. And so I, I, I know a little bit about about a lot of different things. But for the period of time that I'm writing a piece, I become an expert. I do what I have to do. And I do the, a shorter version of that equivalent of reading everything in the Torrance Municipal Library of that. I will. I know how to interview people now and, and get the shortcuts on what's going on. I look for, you know, when, when, when I interview to write for a client in a perfect world, I interview the client, yeah, but I don't take what he says the boss of the company or the guy behind the product as seriously as I do when I want to talk to a secretary, I want to talk to the guy who actually has to sell the thing. I want to talk to the feet in the street. I, w- I want to talk to the, uh, if there are chemists involved, I want to talk to the chemist. If there's, if there's anybody else involved, I want to hear the rumors. I want to hear what his staff is saying behind his back about him. I want to hear what the people who actually have to deal with the people on the phone who are bought and maybe are refunding. I want to hear all these stories because hidden within that are the hooks and the real reasons why people buy and why the product can be successful, which often the owner of the company is clueless about because he has his own myth going on. He's in this, this echo chamber where he believes his product is really great and it's his baby and people buy it because they want X. And usually that's not true. <laughs> usually people are buying it for a totally different reason. And that's why when I present and I don't take on very many clients anymore. I, in fact, I turn down 99% of people who, who want me to write for them, and I recommend other writers to them. And I, I will make sure they're taken care of, but I'm not taking the jobs. But when, when, a cli- when, when a client does hire me and I present a piece to him, if he says, wow, this is a great ad, John, I can't wait to run it, 
then I know I did something wrong. The only way I know I did something right is when I present to him an ad that makes him nervous. And I want him to come back and say, we can't run this. We can't say this. You know, this is going to blow everything up. This is, this is horrific. Because then I know that I've gotten him out of his comfort zone into that space where the ad is going to wake people up and actually, actually get the results that he's looking for. Most people want pablum out there. They, they, they're afraid of their quote-unquote reputation. And they want to run ads that are mild and don't offend anybody. They're more worried about offending people than they are about selling stuff. And, you know, if you're going to sell stuff, if you're going to be aggressive about, about having a great ad running, you're going to get some blowback. You're going to get a certain amount of refunds. I tell people, if you're marketing, you don't have that sweet spot of refunds between 7 and 15% of all sales should come back as refunds. If they're not, you're not pushing hard enough. Because to wake people up, to get them to understand your message, to get them involved in the in the capitalistic dance of buying and consuming and, and, get, and getting whatever it is, whether it's services or products or information, whatever you've got to sell, it's a it's a dance. And fifteen percent of the population, you know, I have a psychology degree, Robert. We t- we talked about that. Fifteen percent of the population is batch crazy. So if you're not bringing in, you know, enough of any given audience. That you're going to, you know, you know the, the 7% re- refund rate that you have, you can't take that personally. That's going to be people who, who bought by accident, who were drunk and bought, who, uh, you know, bought and, and were in a, sch- a, sch- a schizophrenic episode and, and have no memory of it and things. You know, you just have to keep that in mind so you don't take any of that personally. But you have to be – I hear people bragging about zero refund rates. You know, you're just marketing inside a small pocket and you're – you know, if you're happy with that, then great. But if you want to break out of that and really start making some waves in your niche or, or your industry, then you've got to you got to get out of your comfort zone. Hey, everybody. Robert Bruce here, closing out part one of this interview with John Carlton. We'll be back next week with part two. If you want to get more of John, in the meantime, you can find him at john-carlton.com. And if you like what's going on with this show, the best way to support it, as always, is to head over to iTunes and drop a comment uh, there or leave a rating if you do so. We really appreciate it. All right, we'll see you next week for part two of this interview with John Carlton. One, two, three.